What does it take to live your best life on your terms? To change how things are done? How do you need to show up as a leader so you feel capable of making a difference? What needs to happen that has us able to confidently say we are truly living, leading, and operating our businesses and our lives from our purpose? Join me over drinks as I go behind the scenes to reveal the freedom, fulfillment, and success this sort of radical thinking has had in the personal and professional lives of my guests. The game of entrepreneurship is unforgiving, fast-paced, and relentless. It keeps you driven and hungry, sometimes literally. You'll find yourself busy building and doing, rarely with a clear plan of attack. At the beginning, that's a good thing. There's no better environment to figure things out than by rolling up your sleeves and digging in. Action comes before motivation and purpose from creation. And for those of us arrogant and naive enough to believe that we can build something from nothing and be wildly successful in the process, you will want to have someone like Marty Park in your corner. Founding 14 companies gives him a little street cred in the game of entrepreneurship. He's also got a book called Tiger by the Tail, 99 Secrets to Tame and Master Your Business, so be sure to check it out. And a big shout out to Doug at Inner City for hosting us. On today's episode, Marty shares about how he first got into sales and public speaking at a young age, and what happened when he stopped his university tour to pursue the new and foreign aspirational frontiers of entrepreneurship, technology, fast cars, and fat bank accounts. How to tell when you're ready to evolve, when to slow down, and how to keep that dream alive so you and your team are ready for the next opportunity. My, uh, my grandfather's from Kentucky, or was from Kentucky. And so he came up in the Second World War, met my grandmother uh, at the legislature. She was, they were riding bikes. She was having a picnic with girlfriends. He rode, rolled by in his big Southern drawl. And uh, that sort of, you know, he went back to Kentucky and then said, hey, you, why don't you, uh, you know, he actually mailed her a ring. Right. Wow. Said, hey, if, let's get married. If you don't say yes, can you send me the ring back? They had spent you know minimal amount of time together, and uh, so uh, my mom's uh, born in Kentucky, uh, and because they had, after they got married, they moved back to Kentucky, and then they moved back to Edmonton. Uh, but the big things for me, and this is actually plays into my sort of business role, but I used to go. My grandfather sold cars up in Edmonton for Don Wheat Chevrolets for twenty seven years, and he was big huge personality, big Southern drawl. He could turn it on to really make it heavy. You know, y'all need to come. And uh, and he was like a showman, right? And so, but the car connection where most people would think of a car salesman as being that maybe the low end of the sales or the professional spectrum. I really, I mean, had such an appreciation and admiration for car salesmen and salesmen. And, uh, and, and my dad was pretty business focused and uh, um, so, yeah, my progression really became that some of it was, uh, I think, on that path of like, you know, you're a really good student. Uh, performance was important in my house. And so I sort of understood where all that plugged in. Right? My parents were smart enough in grade seven to say, hey, you're going to take this public speaking competition. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Yeah, you do. But by grade nine, I'd been speaking in front of the entire school for three years. And that led to me having... A, the basis and then to be able to get into university and teach a tutorial class for two hours on uh, POEM 201 in front of, you know, a few hundred students without a hiccup. And then to be able to so they say, hey, could you do a bit of a keynote address or stand up? And I was like, sure, no problem. 
Uh, so yeah, I, I think coming out of as a kid, there was some element of like open to sales, open to getting in front of people and really fostering some of those skills that I have. I bet you cringed a little in your seat when Marty started to share about his journey in public speaking at an early age. Picturing yourself up there in that age-old nightmare in front of thousands of people, naked and vulnerable. Okay, well, put your clothes back on. I want you to really think about what that sort of training gave him in terms of confidence and ability that set him up to begin to step into what he could be for the future. When I think back to when I was growing up, I was trained in public speaking, not in the way you would think, but trained nonetheless. From the moment I was able to connect thoughts together more critically, I was encouraged to speak up about it. And from 12 years old and on, I was presenting to groups of 100 to 200 people with a measure of ease and flow. Our next generation of difference makers need that kind of real world practice. We need to step away from the theory and the memorization and be immersed into the practice of action in the world. I got involved with the Entrepreneurs Club at UC and had that sort of moment where guys were like, wouldn't it be great to start a company? And I kind of thought, yeah, it'd be great. More philosophical than anything. But it led me to a big tipping point, a big turning point for me was coming back to my parents with one year left of uh, an English degree and my commerce degree and saying, I'm leaving school. I'm starting a software company with Greg, one of, the, one of my good buddies from university. And we were both in the club together. Um, and yeah, they were like, sorry, what? Well, you, listen, where do we go wrong? We've done such a good job. You're a good student. You've got uh, scholarships. And that divergence was really like, okay, I'm not going to take the path that dad had sort of mapped out, which was, you know, you're going to get a job, join a big company like Procter & Gamble. You work your way up to senior management. And all of a sudden I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Greg and I are going to be retired in six months, Dad. Like the first time, blissfully ignorant uh, entrepreneur. And I, uh, it was great in it. But I, I didn't, like I, people often said from now that I've had a lot of different businesses and stuff. Well, you know, you must have ended. So you identified as an entrepreneur early. I was like, no, no, I just like the idea that we're going to go to start a company. I didn't call myself a business owner. I hadn't really even thought about the identity piece. I was just like, this is going to be way cooler than third year at, uh, accounting or you know the uh, hr management course i'm going to be in this semester so we're just going to start this company and get rolling and uh yeah it, it was just adventure that's really what sort of the driving force was but that for me was a significant turning point and i still tried to be like dad and mom dad i'm going to go back to school i'll finish my degree don't worry and then i was i was in sort of i think my third business where i started to realize oh wait i keep thinking my business partner or the people maybe i'm the entrepreneur guy in here oh and maybe that's actually me, right? Um, and at that point I was like, okay, I'm not going back to school. I don't need school. That's not my path. And really embraced the idea of like, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna carve my own path. And I'm gonna, I'm not gonna worry about the, the paycheck approach, right? I'm gonna just find my own way and I'm gonna be self-sufficient. And that was a big, that, so that turning point was sort of in university. You know what, in a lot of ways, I wouldn't change anything and like, knowing nothing about business and having to learn all those lessons in a lot of ways the hard way um, also set me up to be able to explain and teach those lessons to people later right and be able to say here i can speak from experience um, i think if yeah like if the if our software company had blown up and i mean uh, i sold my half back to greg after five years and greg 
you know, sold it uh, for seven figures. And so there was some success with it, but I mean, my shares when I sold them to Greg weren't at that level. Um, but I think about like, at, you know, being 24, 25, 26, being like, hey, I just put seven figures in the bank account. How that might have killed my motivation or changed the path. And so I think that having some success, like, hey, I'm paying myself, we're profitable, and we're adding people and sort of the growth of the business was way more enjoyable. But it kept me going to be like, okay, what's the next thing? And it kept me driven and, and hungry. So when other top opportunities came up, I was like, yeah, yeah, hey, I'd look at that. That's interesting. And uh, I think having a big bank account at that age would have pushed me to drive a fast car, spend a lot more time goofing off. Um, I spent enough time at the bars as it was. I didn't need to be doing more of that. <laughs> the arrogance and naivety of our younger selves who dared to dream big and then tried to make it a reality. But what better environment to figure things out and rolling up your sleeves and digging in. While there is always a part of us that wished we would have had more support, insight, more awareness or mentorship, even money, would it have really made the difference? Or would you have lost interest maybe too soon? Do you think you would have committed as much to the work? Is it even worth spending the time and energy on that which you can do nothing about? So interesting, uh, in the early days, there was dreaming, right? And, and this is funny because Greg and I, very early on as like 21, 22, I mean, we, we, I don't know if you know if we'd sold anything at this point. We were just still building software with our, with, uh, our developer, Al. And, uh, but at some point, you know, Greg's reading like a fast car magazine and saying to me, like, I don't know if I should go Porsche or Lamborghini. It's like, yeah. And that was our definition of success, right? Um, but there really wasn't necessarily, it was more like spaghetti at the wall. Like, let's try this and see if this is sticking. Here's what the market's telling us. Okay, we got to adapt. And we were working crazy hours. Um, but it really wasn't, it was sort of like, I'm so busy in, you know, the operational side. I, I'm busy in execution. I'm busy doing. And it wasn't really with a clear plan. I, I remember opening up our first restaurant. And once that started to go, my business partner, Soren, and I started to talk about, like, what could we build? And that was the first conversation I vividly remember where it was about this, like, what's the vision for this? And, like, how big could this go or what? And, and we, I mean, we just had a little tiny music club, right? Um, we eventually uh, sold that and then opened up the Ironwood with, with hopes that that would be the next bigger venue that we might lead to a series. But we looked at the House of Blues model. And when House of Blues has ticketing, House of Blues has venues, House of Blues has, we were like, what if we could be the House of Blues in the roots and roots and blues music space, right? Or, or uh, uh, some of the genres that they weren't in, right? And uh, we were like, geez, maybe there's some, and anyway, it, quickly then that was like a visual graphic. And that was the first time I was like, oh, that's now starting to inform some of our decisions. Now that, for different reasons, that didn't work out in that, in, in that, that we just, weren't in a place to take that business any further. Um, but what I'm finding now, and this has sort of been my journey from that vision perspective, is that, and, and I was saying to somebody yesterday, like, listen, you've got to slow down, in fact, and spend time on that. Because it seems like it's getting in the way, like it's slowing down my doing. But if you're able to take one day off and stick to the vision, the plan, and get clear on your inspiration, your motivation, 
and, and really what you're trying to create, well, you can go way faster the next 29 days. So you've got to start to, and I'm a big, uh, you know, Monday, actually, I've got a, a session with our team and that's the whole afternoon. It's just around, let's go back to the vision. And then what does that look like for first quarter for the year for, right? And we started that. And so this is our second day of it. But uh, yeah, I think that having not necessarily like what's the world domination plan, but at least a vision into maybe it's this year or next year or the next couple steps or, but yeah, I think that's mostly actually for clarity and for inspiration. Because I think if you just get into the day to day, it's, it's exhausting it can and be. it's what lifts you and the team back to remember what we're trying to create here that people are like, yeah, it's that, it's that lift of energy of like that breath of like, oh yeah, right, right. We're, we're, we're building something here. We're trying to create something or do something for our, our customers or our, you know, our community. Uh, so yeah, it's funny how I never really considered it other than the crazy dream of ego. We're going to get a fast car. Yeah. And then, and then to translate that through like, okay. And then when we really got into vision, it was about, yeah, it was about community creation. It was about like the experience people were having our experience with it. And so building it wasn't no longer just based on numbers or profit or something like that. And I found, I guess the only other progression I've had with vision is what started out as, okay, well, here's my vision and here's what we're going to do to build it is much more collaborative now. Like, well, where do you think this could go? And I'm enjoying that way more. And it's changed my leadership approach too, but more collaboration of like, hey, I never even thought of that. And people bringing me stuff for my first reaction might be like, eh, I don't know if that, but letting that, exploring it, that it's becoming more, yeah, it just takes things in, a, in an approach that might, it might be different, a different path, but it's now collaborative and cooperative. And then it's really, there's some synergy there. So get clear, what ignites you, excites you, delights you, and don't wait for a start date. Just for the record, my car is either a 454 69SS Camaro or a 911 twin turbo 4S. And I'm looking for someone to give me a ride. So just putting that out there. There was a podcast slash rant I created not too long ago about, um, well, I was expressing my dissatisfaction of how small most organizations play when it comes to the future they're working towards. The thing about playing big that I'm discovering is that while it seems harder, it's actually easier. There's less competition for one. There are far too many companies expending enormous amounts of energy simply reproducing what's already been done. And there's more people out there who want to invest their time and talent into something worthwhile. According to Edelman's Trust Barometer, the greater we want to be engaged and involved. We want the opportunity to shape the future of society and business and be included in the planning. So how big is your vision of the future? And have you played that silky, offbeat, twangy tune for others? Someone's listening and wants to be a part of it. Right. When you say our, who are you talking about? That in fact, most of the time what they mean is mine, my vision, right. And then it's like, well, we want everybody to, you know, now get on board. And I think you're right that all of a sudden you really can create a vision where even if somebody's just got a piece of it, that's theirs, right? They're, they're one circle in the big mind map of what we're going to build. But they're like, I'm on the board. Like I'm contributing now in a way 
And I found that to be true, that it, it, the, the engagement, the commitment people have, and just the enjoyment you get out of that, where you are no longer building something that is like, great, it's my plan. Our plan is always a, a better plan and, and be much more satisfying. And I, that's something I wouldn't have, again, in my 20s starting companies, I was mostly focused on me. And, you know, we're gonna hire the staff to facilitate my plan. Now, in, in fairness, there was community we built there, but it was never based on the idea of like, they didn't play a role in our leadership or our vision or things like that. Right? We just had a great team. I actually, I like that, you know, that phrase, uh, action before motivation, that I totally agree with you that so often, and I think, like people in a leadership role sometimes feel guilty because they're like, I, I really don't have a picture for what that looks like. And I think it's like as though it's supposed to be this like blinding flash of moment where it's like it came to me in a dream. And sometimes the ability and I say action before motivation, because I always like the idea that when somebody is in their car at 7 a.m. and there's somebody already jogging that they're like, well, they're a morning person. There's, and I was like, oh, no, they hated when the alarm went up, too. They just realized once they get running about halfway through the run, they start to feel good and get pretty motivated. Right. So it's after the they've taken action. I think you're exactly right. Get doing something, get putting some brush strokes, and then you'll start to be able to stand back. If you take that moment to stand back once in a while to go, oh, I think I know what this is becoming. And I find it with talking to business owners and even uh, people outside of that, like leaders, where they don't necessarily have that clarity. You know, the thing that I hear with a lot of organizations and a lot of people is they, well, we don't really have a culture. <laughs> You know, well, you do. That You're just sure. apparently are not in charge of it. And what they don't appreciate is that the second you bring two or three people together, you now have uh, a dynamic that is creating some element of these are the unwritten rules. This is the way we behave the culture. Right. Uh, so I think the first thing is identifying either there's a culture growing and happening in any organization and either you are consciously creating it or you are just abdicating. Right? And if it's not you creating it, you know, we'd say it's like that, it's the cancer guy in the office who's always complaining by the water cooler, right? He's a problem guy that nobody, I'm like, great, that's the next biggest voice in the office. So if it's not you, it's that guy that's really driving things. And if you don't know, again, that moment of like, oh, maybe I haven't addressed culture, but okay, now you're aware of it. You're, you can be gentle with yourself and be like, okay, well, this is something we clearly have to be more conscious and take steps on. And I think that's where, this is the next thing that drives me nuts and I've been guilty of it in the past is the idea like, okay, we're going to do a culture exercise one day. We're going to define it based on some words and checkbox. Okay. We now have culture. And I think that, um, much like, you know, being a parent that becomes like, I must've said this a thousand times. That's how a culture gets created about the same time. My kids are mocking me. Uh, then I know they've got the message. And I think that's exactly true with an organization where it's about the time that there's, it's a mantra that everybody gets and they start to roll their eyes and be like, yeah, I know, David, I got it. And you're like, great, you've internalized it. You know what I'm going to say. Yeah. The other thing I think that ties in when you're building any organization that involves hiring people too, is that I think people do their best selling and best behavior in that one hour interview, right? So that you know, you want me to be what high energy? That's right. I'm high energy. Oh, you want me to be in, like you pick whatever culture word you want. That's I happen to belong to every one of those that words. I'm the guy. Culture. Right. Oh, my God. What are the odds? And uh, I, I a couple of things, you know, I realized that, that I remember my wife 
and this sort of goes back to sort of bringing somebody on but at the time she was my girlfriend and i had hired a sales guy and i introduced her and then you know we were at some event and he walked away and she said oh my god tell me that's not the sales guy you hired and i was like what well yeah she was like he's terrible he doesn't fit with you guys as a team or your culture or anything I was like, what? Sure, no he does. And I thought, it's interesting, she spoke to him for two minutes and she knew. But it, what I've discovered is that you can't be the sole set of eyes observing somebody, right? You gotta be like, great, you're gonna meet the team. We're gonna have you spend a week with us. And if that goes well, then we're gonna hire you. We're gonna, like you've gotta immerse somebody in it. Because I find, like dating, you can be under your best behavior for a few dates, but eventually that starts to unwind. And in, in the restaurant business, we started saying, you know, the, the famous yelling chef, like, do you yell at your staff? Oh, no, I'm always just, you know, pretty even keel. Every chef in an interview is even keel. Uh, and then you you say, okay, and so we started hiring people and then we'd find out that they were yeller, throw things, abusive, and you're like, oh. So we started saying, hey, we think you might be a good fit and we want you to meet some of the staff. And so we'll pay you for a week at you know your rate, but just on a contract basis. And we want you to come in and, and get to know everybody. First couple of days, yeah, totally toeing the line, right in line with the culture. But by day three, you'd start to see chinks in the armor. And by day five, I mean, you'd be like, hey, you were throwing the coffee mug and yelling at people and braiding. What happened to the interview where you said, oh, you don't believe, you believe in respect above all else? Well, I, um, uh, right, yeah, you're right. Um, but I think that, yeah, the idea that, okay, to really know if you fit the culture, then let's bring all the other people who live the culture in and see if they think you're a fit is a really critical piece, right? And some exit, like, maybe you don't, you can, don't get to join the club, right? Like you get to visit the club, but you're not, a, I always think the mafia, like you're not made until, you know, you've sort of proven yourself, right? Uh, maybe it's sort of like that, that to be in an organization that there's the idea that you get hired on day one and we just automatically know you're a fit. I like the idea of oftentimes to say, how can we date this person for a little bit and make sure they're a fit or put them to a bit of a test and see what that is. And so I also in the hiring process or in, well, even when you want to have people join your, an organization where maybe it's not a hiring, it can be volunteer driven, that's just asking some of those questions that they don't normally get asked, right? Like around their own values. And then discovering how many people don't have any sense of their own values, yeah. right? Or they do, and you're like, okay. And then to be able to say, give me some examples of that and how do you live that? Oh, uh, you said integrity. How do you live integrity? Oh, wait. Um, uh, but when you find somebody who I think has some self-awareness or is, is really trying to make that effort, that they can give you examples and you start to be like, this person seems pretty rock solid. And sometimes on the organization where they're like, we just need a guy today. And as long as he's got two arms and two legs, like we're hiring. Even though we, we know that down the line, this is probably not the best method. Or you're right, that I'm like, I, I will say whatever you need me to say so I can get this job. And I said, yeah, I, that's, you're so right. That situational requirements or you know demands uh, can change that. But I think you've got to be able to look past that distress of maybe that immediate situation and be able to, I, I found talking to people about, again, like once you get here and you're part of our team, let's put you through some situations. How would you react to this? How would you handle that? And that gives you some sense of how they maybe operate. Um, and, and really if it's situations where they have to make judgment, 
how they value things or how they balance things. Um, but also, again, I like the idea that uh, it's not just, David, let's talk about culture. Great. And we talked about it on your the day we hired you and then it never came up again, right? That if, if you're banging the drum of culture every week that you start to realize like, okay, who's doing the dance with us and who's sort of off on the sidelines? I can think of a couple of people over the years that are, are absolutely the right fit like and, and committed, like love the organization, love the culture. But yeah, the job they're doing, they're just not effective at. Yeah. Right. So I think it does come up. I mean, you know, I, there's there was a guy, Matthew, that uh, worked with us. And in terms of culture, people in the office loving him, um, him being an advocate for the business. I mean, just outstanding. But his functional day to day job, he was just awful at it. Right. And I was so we were sort of talking about how do we get rid of him, but allow him to still come to Friday lunches. Like, how do we keep him socially? Because everybody loves him so much and he's such a good energy, but yet he's so incompetent in his role. And we really have like really wrestled with this idea. Yeah. What happens when you get somebody who is culturally a great fit, but can't do the job? And we, we talked about what else could we get him to do? At the time, we really didn't have much, right? Um, but yeah, there are those situations where, and I think they're rare. Again, I think it's easier to find some it, when you find somebody that's good cultural fit, most people have basic skills to be able to do a job. I'm much more concerned about, uh, I think it's WestJet that sort of has this approach. If we can find people that have great energy, great demeanor and big smiles, we can teach them to check people in. We can teach them to throw baggage. We can teach them to do some of the technical work. And I, that tends to be my philosophy that what kind of a culture am I trying to create? When I think of the team, what kind of energy do I want? What kind of feeling do I want when we're hanging out, right? Um, that I'm thinking about the mood a lot more than I am now about the technical skills. Because in a lot of cases, uh, we've been able to say to somebody, well, we can upgrade your skills. Um, but yeah, there's been at least a couple of instances I can think of where such great people just totally in the wrong seat, like, and on the wrong bus. Checkboxing, brainstorms, word clouds, pinball machines and pool tables, casual Fridays, plaques and posters on the wall, elevator pitches and vision statements. Uh, whatever tactic or strategy you decide to throw against the wall, know that you can't make up or manufacture culture. It already exists. It's the intangible element that makes up the DNA of your organization. It's about understanding it, defining it, embracing it and nurturing it. And it's a process of discovery, creation and alignment. Again, the same way we sort of step back to take the time and then create the space to go, okay, what's the vision, right? For an organization or for me individually. The same way people, when they think about their, uh, their brand or how they show up, I think they're, I mean, people really have never been instructed to do that sort of thing, right? Like, it's never like, oh, by the way, now let's construct your personal brand. Um, I have a friend who wrote a book on personal branding like 15 years ago. And at the time, people were like, what's a personal brand, right? She was sort of well ahead of uh, her time. But, and, and there was an element of that of like, this is how you look, this is how you present. And it was a little bit, but I think the bigger thing is getting clarity on some of you, what you stand for, right? What do you, what can you authentically go out in the world and speak to or speak about or, or um, have passion around that really is something you clearly buy into, 
right? I, I'm a big fan of people's BS meters are, are at an all-time high and on all the time, yeah, right? Completely. And I think that, I like the idea that there's people that run, that are media people, like from a podcast perspective, right? Really popular podcaster, really popular. And the things I see are authenticity, um, vulnerability, um, just uh, transparency, right? Like there's a little bit like, this is me. And I think that as a brand is one of the best things. And and the idea that if you're really, you stick to those things, or this is, you get understanding of this is really me. This is what is important to me, right? Here's what I stand for. That then you don't have to worry about everybody liking me or, you know, should I do, should we build the organization this way so that everybody likes it? Should we, that you can have the, you feel a lot more comfortable being able to say, no, no, not everybody's going to like this, but the people that like it are going to love it, yeah. right? Though I'm going to be able to create that thousand true fans. Yeah. And, and to me, that's one of the things I, from a leadership perspective, is pull people back to say, how are you showing up? And I think, you know, I just had this conversation with a, a situation with a client where he's super analytical, he's super um, cerebral. He's not a very dynamic guy. He's pretty low key, pretty quiet. And he's what's happening is he doesn't recognize how that's how his sort of brand shows up, right? And there's also some place of being able to be conscious of, okay, but as a leader or as a brand, sometimes I need to be able to act a little bit, right? There's sort of me behind the stage and then there's me on the stage, right? Tony Robbins is a little more subdued than he is when he gets up when he's beating his chest. So he knows like it's go time. And I think there's, there's places where you have to adjust your energy, but it's still all in the context of like, I'm still got the same message. It's still authentically me. I'm just maybe I'm on stage. I'm in the play. I'm, I'm, you know, I know my role to play has got to be a little more inspiring or a little more engaging or, and uh, I always found that from a key, from a speaker perspective that there's nothing I say on stage that I wouldn't say, you know, you and me like this, having a beer. The difference is the way I say it is more animated right it's using the stage the space it's more of a show but i'm really clear that when i get off i'm not like well, that was total garbage <laughs> right that was bullshit oh, oh, right yeah right and i've and i've seen a lot of organizations like that in fact i was involved in a franchise organization where i got high enough up in the organization that i started to realize the things they always said at conference or the things they said at the seminars from stage we're not really the way they ran the organization behind the scenes. And my business partner, Jim and I left that organization because it wasn't succinct. It wasn't congruent. Right. And so I like the idea that if you're clear on authenticity, that maybe there's things you still recognize, like these are the things I can deliver right now in terms of uh, that brand. And these are the things I'm, developing or working on right because you know a brand is can be an evolving thing too Absolutely. but at least there's I, I keep coming back to this last year i keep coming back to this word practice right i have a practice much and taken from yoga right like you've got a yoga practice some days good some days bad but it's all moving sort of non-judgmentally to to always be better and then i listened to a podcast with a guy who was talking about how North Americans work out and how everybody's always trying to do a personal best every single workout. And he's like, even strength is a practice. And I, and so that changed my mind. And then I thought, Oh, leadership is a practice. I have days where I'm a terrible leader and other days where I'm great and I killed it. 
but I'm trending in the right direction, right? And I'm constantly working that. And I've realized brand is also a practice of like taking time to get clear, reflecting on how I'm doing, how I'm representing it. Am I true to that? Is there any changes I need to make to the brand? And that there's a practice or an evolution there that, yeah, that it is natural. Yeah. But then I'm, you know, to your point about being conscious or uh, aware and just creating the space, whether it's leadership, culture, brand, ironically, I think all of them need that reflection. And that's where most people fall down. And I'm, I would say I'm striving myself to create space to do those things. The right leadership changes everything. And for our next generation of game changers striving to achieve what has yet to be achieved, you must be willing to do what has never been done. So make ripples, lead the charge, create cool shit that shows others the way to be braver, brighter, and better than we were yesterday. Personally, you owe it to yourself. The more we come together more intentionally to support one another, the sooner we'll all find ourselves not just living, but contributing to the creation of the vibrant, connected communities that fuel dreams. It takes a certain leader to make this happen. So who comes to mind that you would like to hear from? Please let me know, and I'll see what I can do to make it happen. Thanks so much for listening.